All right. Hello, everyone. Again, this is Ethan Shapiro, the climate change realtor with Coldwell Banker, founder and manager of the most innovative real estate sales company in the world, here for another episode of Changing the Climate. I am very lucky to have my guest, Ms. Merit Turetsky, an associate professor at the University of Colorado Boulder's Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology and the director of the Institute of Arctic and Alpine Research, commonly known as INSTAR. So Merit, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, Ethan. It's I'm you know pleased to join you, and I would be remiss. I am a, a woman in science and a woman in academia. I am Dr. Merritt Turetsky. We often will claim our titles, and so I'm speaking up on behalf of all women in science, claiming my title. But yes, please call me Merritt, um, and I'm okay. really happy to join you today. All right, Dr. Merritt, can you tell us a little <laughs> bit about your uh, your background and how you got to be where you are today? Yeah, so I'm a recent transplant to Colorado, actually. Uh, I moved in January after spending the last 15 years living in Canada. I was a Canada research chair, which means I was part of the research culture in Canada. I study northern ecosystems, northern climate change, and I got to travel around uh, working with northern communities doing research. Uh, I'm a wetland ecologist by background, so I'm really fascinated by northern landscapes that have a lot of wetlands on them. And those wetlands are a beacon of change. They tell us a lot about past change. They tell us about current change. And frankly, they are a big player in future change because they do hold so much carbon from the atmosphere. So uh, what I like to say are these are wonderful time travelers. We can go back in time, studying wetland soils. Of course, they're very important for modern time, and they tell us something about our future as well. So I particularly find them fascinating. Um, and I just left that position, uh, which was wonderful, but I left uh, to grow, to uh, challenge myself, and I took on a new position here at the University of Colorado Boulder as the director of this fabulous institute uh, that really studies earth system change, and that is INSTAR. We are a collection of folks that actually work around the world, despite the moniker of Arctic and Alpine focus. We are best known for cold region science, but we do study beacons of change and harbingers of change all around the world, including the tropics. Amazing. So to clarify, you're, you're no longer a professor. You are, you are just the director of INSTAR? I'm also a professor. I'm no longer a professor in Canada. Uh, I, see, I, I see, maintain, I see. I do maintain many ties in Canada mm. and have many ongoing research projects in Canada. Uh, but I am now a full-on buff. Uh, I hold Let's both go. as a director. Yeah, I hold both a director position at an institute, and I'm also a professor in the ecology and evolutionary biology department here in Boulder. So very, I'm feeling very lucky. Uh, despite having should. moved to Colorado in a very bizarre year. No kidding. Oh, so you just got here. Well, amazing. Are you from Canada originally? I'm not actually. I grew up in New Jersey. Uh, oh, I did you? Know. I know yeah. someone who did as well. <laughs> Is that right? <laughs> um, I We're will at. say, so I'm in my, so I grew up in Sussex County. Uh, and it also was this wonderful combination of forests and lakes and water and, you know, I was never the kind of person who can claim I grew up mucking around as a three and four year old knowing I wanted to be an aquatic biologist. You know, I was never like that. 
actually, I didn't expect to become a scientist until well into my graduate uh, program. So I was, really? you know, halfway through my training or more than halfway through my training before I settled on science. Um, I always thought I would become a lawyer, an environmental lawyer, or perhaps go into some kind my of My uncle does that. Work. Yeah. Um, what grabbed me and convinced me that science training wasn't just a stopover and a, a building point in my career, but was actually going to be my career was when I discovered how much creativity is in the scientific process. You get to wake up and ask new questions, pose new methods, and you get to interact with students who are excited, who want to make a difference, who are eager scholars and want to give back to the community. And I I am so excited by that. I've just stopped here and I've dedicated my career to this. And thank you so much for doing that because we need you. But um, where did you do your undergrad and what did you study? So I went to Villanova University. Uh, I was actually valedictorian of my class in um, a long time ago. Props <laughs> to you. In the 1990s. Dr. Merritt. Uh, and you know what was great? So, you know, Villanova is a liberal arts school. Uh, and they they invest a lot of money in under, undergraduate education. And so as a Villanova undergraduate student, I was able to conduct research. I was able to be working in a lab and I was paid for that. I was the kind of student who needed to work in order to go to school. Um, I didn't come from a wealthy upbringing. Um, you know, I'm still very, very privileged, but I did need to work to raise funds for myself. And I was able to do that in a lab, a research setting at Villanova. They funded me to travel to Canada to kind of have my first research experience. I was able to publish data and papers from that experience. So it gave me this incredible jump start into the research world. And it, you know, I, I thank them so much for that. And the way that I pay back is I involve undergraduate students in my research programs. And that is some of the most rewarding experiences I've had as a professor is watching the spark of innovation, of creativity in our younger scholars and our emerging generation. You know, that is what gives me hope for the future because we have such incredible talent coming through the scientific pipeline. No so now I really make sure I invest in that as well. And I also appreciate that very much because we all need to work together. And uh, I believe in our, my generation so, so much. And I do want to throw a huge shout out out to your lab website because I was peeling through it and I love it. And you're working on several different projects and I see the students out there in the field taking samples and doing all those things. I'm curious if you have any favorite experiences or breakthroughs in your work that comes to mind in the last whatever, how long you've been doing this? Uh, well, so, you know, the kind of work that I do you know, when I explain it, I'm excited about it and I have a lot of passion for it, but it's some scary stuff. I study Arctic change mm -hmm. and there's a lot of change going on in the Arctic. So about 20 years ago, I was one of the first researchers to experience personally that climate change is causing wetlands to catch on fire. We never knew that before. And the reason that we learned this is because my own field sites that I was using as a PhD student and depending on burned down. I lost years of data through that experience. What are so, wetlands? So 
wetlands are this fascinating definition. They are in between lands. They're not dry lands and they're not lakes. They're in between. So wetlands include marshes and swamps and bogs and fens. And they're these areas that are wet for part of the year where the surface soils and the vegetation are wet, but only for some of the time. Um, and they usually are connectors on the landscape between the really dry forests and grasslands and meadows and the aquatic water bodies. So because they're in between, they filter water. They mm -hmm. make sure that the water entering our fishing areas, our drinking water areas are clean. Um, we call them the kidneys of the landscape because they're constantly filtering the soil and the water and making sure that the resources are clean. So these are really important um, areas on the landscape. And also because they're wet, the soils, everything kind of is slower in a wetland than it would be say in a forested ecosystem. Microbial activity is much slower under those wet conditions. And as a result, these ecosystems are stockpiling carbon out of the atmosphere. So these are really important climate regulators as well, which is why I'm drawn to them. That's, that's mm -hmm. really what I study. Um, because they are able to support high levels of productivity. A lot of plants, a lot of animals build their biomass in these ecosystems. And when those organisms die, their biomass actually gets incorporated into wetland soils and gets preserved. So and in that's carbon, is it not? That's carbon. Yeah, half of that biomass is carbon. And so when you're standing on the surface of a bog in the north, I like to say you're standing on six or 7,000 years of data. You can awesome. drill down into these soils and record environmental change, but those soils are storing carbon all the way through the ages. And so over the entire period of time that our uh, northern landscapes have not been glaciated, so the past you know, 10,000 years or so, these ecosystems have been regulating our carbon. They, sorry, they've been regulating our climate by accumulating carbon. They've been cooling the Earth's climate. So that's a really important climate service that's Definitely. been provided by these northern ecosystems, and we want to understand that. Because of course today, now these ecosystems represent a tremendous stockpile of carbon that could be injected back into the atmosphere if these ecosystems burn, if these ecosystems warm up. The kinds of ecosystems that I study in the north have permafrost. That means their soils are not only wet, they're frozen. That permafrost is now thawing uh, around the Arctic and we're trying to understand what that means for that huge globally significant stockpile or reservoir of stored carbon. Right. So one of your experiment sites, you said had a, was it a wetland that lit on fire? Because that seems kind of counterintuitive, doesn't it? It does. So again, we hear about peat fires today in the media. We hear about it in the news. Indonesia has these tropical peat fires that shut airports down that are threatening endangered species in the tropics. It's a little more common in our lingo in an, and in our media coverage today. But when I was first setting out as like a scientist 20 odd years ago, this was unheard of. Wetlands don't burn because they're wet. 
Hmm. But I walked into a field site after driving for 15 hours to northern Saskatchewan to visit my field site, and I discovered my sites had, in fact, burned down. So I lost, in, in that one experience, I realized that I lost about four years of data, and it really affected me personally because I wanted to graduate and get my degree, and I couldn't do that without the data. So I cried. No, no shame in that, you know, no, as not. women are entering the workforce and entering science, we cry. We are hey, I, hey, I cry too. Don't worry. Yeah, you know, we bring it. Regularly. Uh, then I actually had a shot of scotch and I picked <laughs> myself up and figured out what I was going to do. And what I did is I actually studied that fire and then I found other Smart. fires to study. And so, you know, what turned, what was a lemon and what was a real hardship turned into a silver lining because it allowed me to develop this whole new area of scholarship. And I'm still working on this field 20 odd years later. So what we now know is that when wetlands are wet, when they're, they're um, undisturbed and they're functioning, functioning naturally, they tend to burn pretty rarely, but when they're impacted by human drainage, you know, when farmers are draining wetlands to divert water when uh, wetlands are drained from road construction mm -hmm. or when wetlands are drying as a result of climate change, they become extremely vulnerable to burning. So fuels in wetlands go from being protected by high water table to actually becoming extremely flammable under dry conditions. So these fuel, the thing you're calling fuel, is, is that the thousands of years of, of, of biomaterial that's now just sitting as mostly carbon, is that right? Yeah, it's, it's a carbon stock when they're wet, but when those soils dry out, they have this potential to decompose faster or burn. And both of those processes, whether it's biological decomposition or whether it's biomass burning, both of those increase as a result of drying. And drying can happen with anthropogenic disturbance. It can happen because of anthropogenic climate change both of those release greenhouse gases from the atmosphere. The source of those greenhouse gases is that stored ancient biomass. Mm -hmm. So Northern soils have been this tremendous climate regulator, a global freezer for us for thousands of years. But all of a sudden with increased warming and drying, what's gonna happen? So that's what we focus on my team of students and myself, we're really interested in understanding the vulnerabilities there. Excellent. So do you want to explain, first off, I'd love to hear what you're doing up in Alaska with your, your peatland experiment, but I'd also like to know what the difference between a wetland and a peatland is. Well, we can debate that forever. So let me touch on that <laughs> question first. So, um, you know, the term wetland uh, has taken on political meaning oh, God, because so many land uses depend on wetlands. Uh, no net loss, the Clean Water Act, all of these policies that we're implementing and enforcing and regulating here in the United States to protect our water and to protect our land ultimately hinge on our definition of wetlands. So every agency in the United States has a different definition of what a wetland is. But if you just step back and take a little bit of a broad brush, what they all agree on is that a wetland is an ecosystem that's wet and where that wetness 
It may not persist year round, but it's biologically important. So it influences the kinds of um, species that are present in that ecosystem. Um, a peatland is a kind of wetland. So it's one mm -hmm. type. So wetland is this broad umbrella and a peatland is one particular type of wetland. And it's the type of wetlands that's, that stores peat. Peat is just dead plant stuff that accumulates in the soil. And so if you get more than 40 centimeters, this really thick layer of peat, that wetland becomes either a bog or a fen. And those are two types of peatlands. Um, and What's so the difference are between a bog and a fen? Mm -hmm. So the a bog, so again, bogs and fens are two types of peatlands, and thus they are inherently wetlands also under this mm -hmm. broader term. I'm following. Oh, good. You're you're getting a crash course in my wetland ecology course. This is what this is what I'm here for. <laughs> so bogs and fens are these fascinating definitions. Um, you know. Actually, I like to talk about this a lot. Bogs make it into our pop culture, you know, all the way through the eras. People have been writing novels where people get lost in mires, lost in the bog. You got quagmired, right? It's in our lexicon. It's in our terminology. They represent these sort of places where people can get lost. It's very mysterious. Um, both bogs and fens look really similar in some places. They they stockpile peat. They have they can support trees, but they tend to be pretty stunted, sad-looking trees. Um, and they're the big difference between a bog and a fen is in their hydrology. So bogs are like these isolated basins. They receive all of their nutrient and water inputs only from the atmosphere, so only from rainfall. And so they tend to have really interesting vegetation like pitcher plants, um, bug-eating plants, sundews, all of these wonderful examples of um, evolution of life that have adapted to really extremely difficult conditions because bogs are very acidic and very low in nutrients. They're not receiving any runoff from catchments around them, from, from receiving lands. It's only coming from rainfall. So they have these really peculiar plants and animals that have adapted to life in bogs. Fens tend to be the kind of systems where water is moving fluidly through them. So they are often the landscape connectors. They're connecting upland forests to rivers, to streams, to lakes. And if there's water moving through uh, a peatland, we would call that a fen. Okay. So there's like, a, it's like a bog with a river or like a bog with a lake or a stream, <laughs> yeah. some so sort of connecting body of water. Yeah, it's got water moving through it and that water moving through it tends to carry nutrients with it. And so fens tend to have a lot more higher nutrient concentrations. Again, they tend to be really productive ecosystems. They support a lot of plant life. Uh, but that plant life would be the kind of uh, plants that you might see around the edge of a lake, very riparian kind of vegetation, lush grasses and sedges. Um, but they're fascinating ecosystems. Um, again, what's what I love about them is they take you on this sort of time warp. Mm. You can use peat records as an archive of past change, but then we implement these uh, ecosystems into our models to understand future trajectories of climate change as well, because they are 
extremely important players in the global carbon cycle. And thus, they will be part of dictating our climate future. We can't understand what our climate future is going to look like if we don't understand carbon release from these northern wetland soils. That's, that's definitely fair. And what I, what I find interesting is this idea we have of like a swamp where it's like creepy and there's like the monster from the lagoon who comes out and kills you and, and you, yeah, right. And you sink into the swamp and you, and you die. But what's interesting is that it's all, it all is part of the, the system of life when all this material is being filtered into the plants so they can provide life for other beings. So it sounds like it's, it could be a very flourishing ecosystem because all the, everything circles back into each other. You know, I guess that is what I'm trying to say. Like rainforest is the same way, like something dies and it feeds the plants and the plants feed the animals and, and the, the bogs and the peatlands are probably all the same way. Just different types of organisms thrive in different environments. And, and different rates of cycling. So what you're picking up on Time is scale, this, yeah. This, yeah, so in, in a northern system, because it's cold, everything's slower. slower. And in wet northern wetlands, everything is even slower because that wetness on top of the cold temperatures also slows things down. So that's why you get the bog man, like the Tolland man, getting preserved in bogs. So we know that either as part of a sacrifice or perhaps to hide criminals' bodies, uh, ancient peoples used to throw bodies into the bog and they mm. got preserved. Everything slows down in terms of the rates of cycling in these very cold, wet and acidic soils perfect place to look at something that's thousands of years old because it's kind of just been sitting there for so long and not moving very quickly um what do you what are you guys doing up in alaska are you just taking samples and uh, anything you can do to stop it from lighting on fire (laughs) well yeah i mean yes and no so i mean the best way to preserve carbon in northern grounds is really not to focus on any land use change in the north, but it's to focus on climate policy. So the only way to keep permafrost frozen, to keep northern wetlands wet, is really to take climate change mitigation seriously and reduce carbon emissions around the globe. Um, What I like to say is that the north, the Arctic, is, is a cry for, it's giving us a warning sign The Arctic, because of patterns of climate change and atmospheric circulation, the Arctic is impacted first by climate change patterns, and it's impacted the strongest. The problem is not many people live in the Arctic. So Mm -hmm. we have indigenous people, we have some colonial settlements living in the north, but in general, the population size is pretty low, pretty small. Um, these, these people are very important to me, but the population size is so small that they don't have a large political force mm-hmm. uh, at national or international scales. And so they rely on, you know, people around the world speaking up for them, saying, we care about the Arctic, we want to save the Arctic. And there is a reason why we should all do that. First, we're not talking about hypothetical anthropogenic climate change. This is not going to happen in the future. This is happening now. It's impacting Arctic peoples and Arctic land very strongly, very rapidly right now. 
I often have to do climate change education and climate change dialogue to people living in the lower 48, to people living in temperate climates. When you travel across the Arctic, uh, they are my kindred spirits. They understand climate change. They, they understand exactly what's going on. They're basing that knowledge on indigenous knowledge. They know what's been happening for thousands of years for many cycles of their own generation and they understand how unusual this current you know decade has been for them so there is no climate change educated education required when i travel across the the north they are true partners for us we are trying to partner together uh, to document, not to understand, we understand what's happening in the Arctic. We need to document what's happening and we need to broadcast and disseminate that information to other people around the world so that we can all take climate change policy seriously. And there's a reason, there's another reason, not only just for moral imperative, should we pay attention, but we need to pay attention because when the Arctic changes, it will influence climate around the entire globe. Permafrost in the Arctic stores twice as much carbon as is currently contained in the atmosphere. Twice as much carbon. And it's melting. So when, and it's melting. So we Every call day. it permafrost thaw. And when that permafrost thaws, it is releasing carbon. And I am an expert. I'm a world expert on this. It is happening now. It is happening faster than scientists predicted it would five years ago. It's happening faster than we even predicted it would happen last year. So we're on a little bit of a tipping point here where, you know, things are speeding up. We're kind of watching in horror as huge craters are opening up in Siberia because so much methane is accumulating subsurface as a result of thawing permafrost. It's creating explosions across the Arctic. Literally this summer, the Arctic developed a fever. For the first time, uh, Places in the Arctic Circle of Siberia spiked temperatures above 100 degrees Fahrenheit. <laughs> in the yeah. Arctic, there yeah. were places in northern Siberia that were that, hotter than the southwest of the United States. Is that because of methane? Time. That's because of that was because of a prolonged heat wave that stayed on top of the Arctic in Siberia. It settled over the Arctic around January, so in, in the wintertime. And for a six-month period of time, Siberia experienced temperatures that were 12 to 15 degrees Fahrenheit above average for six months in the Arctic. It was that much warmer than we usually expect. And because of those unusually warm conditions, Siberia caught on fire in early May, very early start to their fire season. And they had an incredible fire season that we tracked in real time using satellite data all summer long. And there are still places that are on fire in Siberia. We are making the prediction that some of those fires will go underground and will actually persist through the winter 
in peat layers under a snowpack and we will see them emerge next spring. So this is, uh, we call this a zombie fire. It's a holdover fire that persists through the winter and then possibly pops back up to ignite new fire activity the following fire season. We saw this develop last season in, in Siberia. We watched this cycle develop this year. We're predicting it's gonna repeat itself next summer. And it's a good example to your listeners of how there can be strong momentum in the climate system. So yeah, and change one year can have a carryover effect and have an influence in the future. I was going to ask you to explain how something like this can cause something like this to happen even more in the future. The science behind how releasing more carbon creates more heat, which releases more carbon, which re creates more heat. I was just going to ask you to shed some light on that, if you would. So again, that's a cycle. And the cycle you just described in scientific terms is called a positive feedback cycle. It's when an increase in one process like wildfire can generate momentum through the climate system by causing positive effects all the way around the circle. So permafrost thaw releases greenhouse gases, both carbon dioxide and methane, which then are emitted to the atmosphere. Those greenhouse gases cause more warming because of global climate change, which causes more warming of surface soils, which causes more permafrost thaw, which causes more release of greenhouse gas, and you get into this positive feedback cycle. Here's the problem. The problem is when the public hears positive feedback, it <laughs> sounds quite cheery. Wow, that's great, it's positive. It's not positive in this case. It's actually, it leads to instability in the climate cycle. So now scientists are trying to refer to these kinds of feedbacks as a vicious cycle or a vicious circle, because that's right. really what we're talking about, where a change begets a change, begets a bigger change, and it speeds up through the system. Um, and so fire is another example. Fire also releases greenhouse gases. It contributes to more warming and drying of fuels, which causes more fire, and we get ourselves into a vicious cycle. Yeah, that's horrifying. And I love how you, you say everything w with a smile because, you know, that's the best way. And I think communication is is so important. And I appreciate you coming on here and, and talking about this stuff. And the more we can talk about it, the better. I'm curious if you want to talk about um, you're one of the founding members of the Permafrost Carbon Network and what you're doing with that exactly. So the Permafrost Carbon Network is a wonderful example of, of how grassroots momentum can build. And that's why I have a smile on my face, because we, we still have time There's to hope. address. There is absolutely hope and we can we don't have the luxury of giving up hope. So I know there's a lot of climate pessimists out there. Um, I say to anyone who's listening, who's giving up hope, you can't. Um, our future generation depends on us not giving up hope. Um, we do have a window where we can have significant control over our climate future if we take advantage of it. And so I want to thank the Arctic for sending us a strong signal for kind of giving us this warning cry to take things really extra seriously um, because we have time to make a difference now. The Permafrost Carbon Network was started with a group of colleagues, a group of my scientific friends, uh, a, about 12, 13 years ago now. Uh, and we were really interested in putting better scientific terms and reducing uncertainty related to that one vicious cycle 
related to thawing permafrost because the models were scary and we didn't know if the models were doing justice to uh, the real data. There was just very little information about Arctic change and we felt like this needed some scientific scrutiny. And so we tackled this as a group together. Uh, we did receive funding from a number of sources, including the National Science Foundation in the United States. But since then, our group of you know, five or six colleagues grew to a group of around 40 scientists in our early period of network building. And now today, a decade later, we have more than 250 members to our network across 27 different countries. We're all working together. We are unfunded. So we are doing this on our own time. Um, we're working together to work with the global climate change community, to work with governments, to work with politicians, to better understand what's happening around the Arctic, to get that information into the public's hands, to make sure that models, which are our best tool for peering into the future of climate, we don't have a magic crystal ball. Instead, we have climate models. Climate models are not meant to be perfect. They're not meant to be 100% accurate. They are meant to be powerful tools for gazing into the realm of scenarios that are our climate future. The problem is 10 years ago, those models did not include some of these vicious cycles like permafrost. So right. we knew that they couldn't, they couldn't do their job at being powerful tools if they didn't include a reservoir that stores more than twice as much carbon as is in the atmosphere. So today those models have permafrost and that's largely thanks to the permafrost carbon network. And that's also terrifying because it means the models are worse. And that, that totally explains when I read that models are worse than what we think they are because well, they're missing information. And this is a big piece. Higher, but they're getting more accurate. And so there are more powerful tool for society to use. Um, and so we, we want accurate information. Even if that information is dire, we of need what our future is so that we can take action now. So again, that's how we can be absorbing as a society, difficult information together. Yeah, it's difficult. I get it. I am, I am surrounded by difficult information every single day because of what I study. But we have to have it. We have to tackle these challenges. We have to figure out how to work together because there is no us versus them. We all experience the same climate. We are all under the same climate umbrella. So it's a wonderful example of diplomacy. We don't get to pick and choose the climate we experience. Um, so we are all in this together. And the, the more powerful our, tool, our tools can be, and I'm not saying models are the only tool, but they are a wonderful example of our tools, the better off we all are. That, yeah, I completely agree. And do you want to talk a little bit? Um, it's, it's very interesting. It seems like the, the answers to, to climate change do lie in the poles of the planet. And it's interesting how climate change seems to have an unequally massive effect on the poles of the planet. And then the poles of the planet seem to have an unequally massive effect on climate change. So it does seem like this nasty, what did you call it? Fe feedback loop or... And yeah. why is it? What's what is it about the poles that's not that doesn't have that same effect in the rest of the world? 
Well, so there are a number of examples of these positive feedbacks or vicious cycles. Vicious um, cycle. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the tropics, for example, there, there are a couple issues related to deforestation that represent a similar vicious cycle or feedback that influences climate. But uh, the, I, I agree, there are a number of these vicious cycles that are all focused in northern and southern high latitudes, so the poles. Um, and that is, um, that's for a number of reasons. It's, it's because of a, a phenomenon that we call Arctic amplification or polar amplification. And it's just a consequence of circulation patterns, both oceanic and atmospheric circulation patterns that make everything a little more extreme at the poles. Mm. The poles also, of course, have our large expanses of land and sea ice. It's this huge block of white stuff that reflects a lot of heat and energy back to the atmosphere. But when we lose that big expanse of white stuff and it becomes dark, we absorb a lot more of the uh, sun's energy on earth and that leads to warming. So that's one example of a vicious cycle related to loss of sea ice. We hear about that cycle a lot. Permafrost is a really interesting cycle because it's hidden. It's not something we can track like the loss of sea ice. We can monitor sea ice using satellite data Permafrost is subsurface, it's underground. So, you know, in order to study permafrost, we actually have to dig deep. And that means it's difficult to study. We can't monitor it using satellite imagery necessarily. Sometimes we can use indirect tools. We know what the land surface looks like when permafrost thaws. We can see those big craters blowing up in Siberia. We can see lakes draining as a result of permafrost thaw, we can see lakes forming as a result of permafrost thaw. And those changes we can detect using satellite data, but we can't actually monitor permafrost itself. So that's why I, I personally think permafrost is really interesting to study because, uh, because it's a little bit logistically challenging. Nice. Um, is there any way to rebalance this ecosystem in the North to just like kind of isolate it and is there anything we can do to kind of put it back in whack or is it just everyone around the world has to change their the whole climate change problem everyone has to change the way they act and stop emitting greenhouse gases and all that stuff is there nothing we can do in these isolated places to put it back in, in a circle of life i don't know yeah i mean it's a really good question and i get this question a lot what can we do to save permafrost um I guess it's a mixed bag. You know, the only way to truly keep permafrost frozen is to curb global climate change. And that is not a, that is not a problem we can hand off to Northern countries, Northern peoples. They didn't cause anthropogenic climate change. They are a minor player in global emissions. You know, climate change can't be solved by anyone other than the big emitters. Mm -hmm. However, Northern peoples, indigenous peoples, uh, people who have been living on the land for hundreds, if not thousands of years, have gone through a lot of change. Um, we have some of the best Northern engineering. Uh, you know, we have learned how to cope with extreme wildfires, with past cycles of permafrost thaw. 
there are ways to mitigate and adapt in the Arctic. And we certainly will see that people will survive in the Arctic, no matter what kind of environmental change is thrown at them. But, you know, again, to keep that carbon in the ground, we need to curb anthropogenic climate change. So here's, a, I mean, this is such an example of global climate disparity. Arctic regions and Arctic peoples have done very little to cause anthropogenic climate change. And yet Arctic land is changing more rapidly and it's changing first as an early indicator of anthropogenic climate change that we will start to see spread across the world. So what's happening in the Arctic today is going to be felt around the world in terms of these really rapid changes as a consequence of climate change. Because Arctic soils store so much carbon, changes that we're seeing early on are going to influence and cause more severe warming that will be affected by the tropics that will be felt and impacted in temperate regions. So it's this idea that of connections um, and, and perhaps as diplomacy. So we're going to see more and more refugees um, being mobilized and redistributing around the earth as a result of climate change. That's already happening today, mostly because of relocation with island nations. There are some Arctic people who are also being moved as a result of climate change away from coastlines that are being disrupted. This will happen more and more. And we're going to see convergence on areas, um, you know, where resources remain abundant. So I think, you know, this is going to lead to a lot of change and a lot of disruption. Naturally. And it will become increasingly a political issue but for reasons that are different today. Today, climate change is a political quote unquote issue because of misinformation that has been doled mm -hmm. out, uh, because of the public erosion of trust in science. You know, and Carl Sagan predicted this quite well several decades ago, society is lost when the public loses faith in science. Science doesn't always get it right. Science, that's not the goal of science. The goal of science is to make predictions and to put a process in place that is self-correcting. So if science doesn't get it right at first, it will correct itself over time. Science has made very accurate predictions about global climate change and anthropogenic warming since the 1970s. And we have been constantly improving those predictions, building on those predictions. And we, you know, again, we haven't always gotten it right, but we have continued to self-improve. And that is the scientific process. Definitely. So any erosion of trust in that process, any erosion of trust in the predictions of climate change is a, a, a direct result of misinformation. Yeah. And it's always about the pursuit of, of getting answers, but what answers typically lead to is always more questions. And that's just the way that this game goes. And the more and more I, I do this show and I think about climate change, I'm, I'm starting to realize, or at least I'm making up in my head what the solution is. And, and I, I do think it is all about just communication. Because once someone fully understands what's going on, 
they, they can't rationalize just inactivity. I don't think if you truly like you do on a foundational level, understand what is happening. You've felt the, you've seen the permafrost with your hand, you've studied it. You've seen how it's different. You've seen the fires, you've smelled them. Um, what I'm, what I want to ask you is how do we communicate these complex issues, which has a lot of evidence to someone who's just not science minded, someone who just doesn't, doesn't think in the way that a scientist does it, but they, but we need everyone to understand what's going on. Right. And I, so I, I think you just nailed it. So we don't communicate through the evidence. So the evidence is overwhelming. It's technical. It's complicated. I've lived it. I've breathed it. I've smelt it. I have fell into it. (laughs) You know, I have been surrounded (laughs) by the evidence. Um, the evidence is not what changes people's hearts. It's not what changes people's mind. People don't care about the evidence. People care about their kids. People care about their livelihoods. People care about the air they're breathing. So I'm sitting, talking to you in Boulder. I'm surrounded by a smoke plume from a fire that is about two miles from my house. And it is, it is a climate impacted wildfire even though the ignition source of this fire probably was human caused, it was probably caused by a blown transformer, the fuel load and the way that the fire is burning, what's contributing to the fire behavior is an aspect of climate change. So, um, you know, we all are connected by these issues and we need to communicate on those values and on those connections. The problem is I am extremely well-trained in scientific dialogue. I am trained to present data. I am trained to talk about statistics. I am not trained to get up in front of a community group and spill my heart out, but that's what we need to do because um, the people who know the most about climate change, scientists, like are also people. I'm also a resident of Boulder. I'm a mom of three daughters who care about climate change, who want to know what their future is going to look like. They want to know if they can go to Alaska in the future, or maybe they won't be able to. Those are the things that they care about. So more and more, our communication about climate change is not on the technical level. It's about the connections. And I think, you know, if more scientists can get comfortable, kind of loosening up and letting go and forgetting a little bit about their technical training and speaking from their heart. I think that's where we'll, we'll really make some progress and we'll really start to answer the questions that people care about. I think that's, that's so true. People not only need to take in information on a, a logical level, but on an emotional level as well. And that actually people have to accept that that takes time as well. It takes time for heavy information to sink in often. I'm curious what your thoughts are on a, a bottom up solution to climate change versus a top down. And I say this on a lot of the episodes, I understand we need both, but I'm curious what what you would lean towards or just your thoughts in general about, about getting um, action done. Yes. Well, we absolutely need both, but the problem is we, we can't have either in isolation. So we need bottom-up action because voters need to vote through their value system. And when politicians understand that they will not retain their elected offices if they do not put climate change front and center as a societal concern because of their constituents' concerns, you know, we, we will not have real action on climate change. So that's a bottom up action through our democratic process. Um, 
so we need voters to make it really clear about where their vote is being cast and why. What are the issues that form the platform upon which they're making their decision to vote? And we need politicians to listen to that. But by and large, the best action on climate change will come at the level of large corporate institutions, it'll come through economics, and it'll come through governments. We need government policy to reel in uh, climate change action at an institutional level. But we won't have politicians taking action if the voters don't speak through their votes. So that's why I believe in this interaction between bottom up and top down. Um, you know, we can't, we, we really can't have one without the other. They need to work in concert. Yeah. And as you were saying that, I was realizing how, how silly it is for me to ask that question so often, because I, I realize they really are just so deeply interconnected. When you get down on the level and you get the people together and you build this grassroots movement, the politicians have to come and flow or else they won't stay in office. And honestly, they're not, who cares about the politicians? We're the government. You know, we're deciding we would like to live. We would like to not have fire. We would like to have clean air. And it just seems so obvious. So I think, again, getting communication together and building, um, a network of people who understand what's going on and want to get more people involved for the, for the good of everyone is kind of what I'm, I'm interested in, in building in some way through my business. So to just kind of conclude here, I'm wondering what your thoughts are, as, as you mentioned, like large corporations, what role do they have to play in this crisis? Can we rely on businesses to take care of, of our environment or because in the past it hasn't seemed to be the case. And I'm trying to build a hybrid of a, a company that makes profit, but most of the profit is going to be given to fight this climate crisis, though it, I don't have to do that. I, I feel like I do. So I'm curious if what you think your thoughts are as far as new startup companies or large corporate interests playing a positive role in this fight. In general, I think our most, uh, our most hope, our greatest action will come at the local level. So I really encourage if people care about this issue and they're frustrated because they want to do something, doing something involves reaching out to your local businesses. Doing something means you know, coordinating with your local politician's office. We are so consumed with national politics. Mm. It is like Every day there's something happening that is diverting our attention, but it's a diversion because Think the global, real action, act local. Exactly. Act locally. It's your local politician who feels the same thing that you are feeling, who cares about the same thing that you are feeling and who can then funnel up those values and that action, you know, through the political chain. Same with businesses, support your local businesses, make sure whenever you spend money, you are trusting the brand that you support. Mm, but and with your we, dollar. With your dollar, with your vote, we have a responsibility as, you know, as citizens and people uh, to use our resources wisely. And our resources are our dollars and our votes. So do a little research, do a little homework. Uh, you know, corporations respond, just like governments, respond to where their customers are coming from. So I, I think we have not exerted our influence as strongly as we can. And I think that's starting to change. So I think what we're seeing is more brand loyalty, both to politicians and to corporations around the concept of stewardship. And that 
is a concept that really unites across political spectrums, across ages. You can be very religious, you can be conservative and consider yourself a steward of this planet. You could be an environmentalist and as left as they come and you consider yourself a steward. Every parent is a steward. So I think that concept of stewardship is going to unite us in the future. We are going to be using our resources like our talent, our time, our money, and our votes to orient ourselves around stewardship. And I, I think that is what we need to promote and encourage as much as possible from our local businesses and governments. Cool. Well, Merritt, thank you so much for coming on. It's really been a pleasure to speak with you. And I, I do look forward to hearing more about your research. And I'm happy to hear that you are in Boulder. So, so welcome. Thanks, Ethan. Great chat. It's been a pleasure. As always, guys, this was Changing the Climate. You can look forward to another episode next week where we continue tackling this amazing challenge with lots of optimism and intelligence and good energy. So thank you all for being here. It's been an absolute pleasure. Stay happy, stay well, and stay positive.